0: Well, we're moving forward in our biblical narrative, and we're moving forward in our understanding of God. Every picture reveals something more of God's character. In the story of Noah, we learned God deeply loves all creation and is committed to see it thrive and experience shalom. In the story of Abram and Sarai, we learned God invests in a particular people so that Through them, God might bless all people and all nations. Today, in the story of the Hebrews escaping Egypt, we are shown one of God's most enduring and beloved and troubling character traits God's preferential treatment of the poor and oppressed. Yes, God practices preferential treatment. God has favorites. God is biased. God takes a side in human affairs. And that sounds like good news gospel for one side and maddening religious heresy for the other. Am I overstating it? You decide after we explore Exodus. The story we read this morning is just one pivotal point in a much longer story about how the Hebrew people got to Egypt to begin with, why they ended up being enslaved, how they got out of that death trap they were in, how they coped with the sudden unexpected freedom. And all the ups and downs and ins and outs of becoming a people knit together in covenant with God. When we read the story of crossing the Red Sea all by itself, it's easy to mistakenly assume the main point of the story is to prove how powerful God is. That God can and will defy nature to part the waters and miraculously bless the people plus his people. Typically, we spend a lot of interpretive energy on that one spectacular act, parting the waters. The details are what people get into arguments about. What some people try to argue is a literal, historic description of an event, and others try to explain in more academic and rational terms that it's not what we know as the Red Sea, but a Reed Sea, a more marshy environment. Meanwhile, we have etched in our mind's eye the image of Charlton Heston holding up his arms in the classic movie with a hundred foot walls of water rising up on either side and thousands of Israelites and their livestock walking miles across before the sea crashes down with a fury, drowning the Egyptian army and their horses. To even conjure up that scene is off-putting, especially this week. After two hurricanes laid waste to large sections of Puerto Rico and Florida and other coastal communities, Exodus states that Yahweh sent a strong east wind to pile up the water and dry off the seabed, and then brought the water back to where it was. With this Exodus story rolling around in my mind, I watched video of Hurricane Ian, where winds north of the eye wall drove the water out to sea, leaving boats sitting on dry land. And south of the eye wall, winds pushed a. 12-foot wall of water, inland, flooding homes and vehicles and drowning people and animals. A little surreal. But I'll chalk it up to pure coincidence. There's no meaning or connection behind it in my mind. Wind moving water is just something that happens in our world. The real story here in Exodus is not God moving a wall of water. The story is God revealing to the world for all time God's strong bias against the oppressor and for the oppressed. What is uncovered here is that God has a preference for certain kinds of people. Now, if we have a little gut reaction, a small pang of resistance to the idea that God has a preference for certain people or is biased or takes sides in human affairs, it probably says something about which side of the social balance scale we find ourselves on. Yes, even while I... Preach that God is biased toward the oppressed, I find myself mostly on the opposite side of where God is weighing in. And I have to face up to my own internal resistance to this idea. But rather than resist or protest, I really should listen more deeply. Given the racial reckoning of our day, Given our coming to terms with the persistent harm caused by socially ingrained white supremacist ideology, we ought to read Exodus with our ears and eyes wide open. Now is the time and place in this biblical narrative to hand it over to other interpreters of Exodus, whose own lives, his own lived history and experiences daily more closely resemble what the Hebrews went through. White preachers and scholars descended from Western Europeans and trained in the disciplines of classical theology, like myself, maybe don't have the best social location to rightly interpret the God who freed Hebrew slaves. For many African Americans descended from enslaved people, for many Latin American Christians oppressed by dictatorships propped up by Western governments and corporations, for Jews who are shaped by the horrors of the Holocaust, This story of the Exodus is not just one of many interesting stories in the Hebrew Bible. This is the prominent story they keep returning to. It's their heart story, their heart story that resonates most deeply with them. It's the story that is most formative for their understanding of who God is. These people of faith see in Yahweh a God who is not just bothered, but enraged when human beings oppress other humans. Oppressing others is the worst way to fail our divine calling. It's the worst way to corrupt and obscure the divine image in us. When human beings loved by God abuse other human beings equally loved by God, it's an insult to God. It is saying to God's face that God's love is meaningless. It's denying God's love for those persons we oppress and God's love for us. The story of the Exodus is the sacred text for understanding that God is, above all else, a liberator. James Cone, the influential black liberation theologian, said, a gospel that doesn't liberate is no gospel at all. In his book, God of the oppressed, about 25 years ago, he wrote, and I quote, The biblical God is the God whose salvation is liberation. God is the God of Jesus Christ who calls the helpless and weak into a newly created existence. God not only fights for them, but takes their humiliated condition upon the divine person and thereby breaks open a new future for the poor, different from their past and present miseries. End of quote. In other words, James Cone is saying, God not only became one with all humanity in the incarnation, But God became one with the oppressed in Jesus' crucifixion. Through the cross, God not only sided with the oppressed, God became the oppressed. Traditionally, white evangelicalism and Western Protestantism tend to make God's salvation entirely personal. The aim is to keep us individually from eternal damnation. Well, being saved from damnation might be good motivation for us who live in relative comfort. But if you are on the underside of society, if you are being oppressed... You don't need potential damnation to make you respond to God's salvation. You are already in a living hell. What you need and what you're looking for is liberation. Now, I I owe those thoughts to Johnny Rashid, an Arab-American pastor in Philadelphia, author of a book just recently released by Herald Press. Entitled Jesus Takes Aside. That's not been my default way of thinking about salvation. But it's what I hear when I listen to voices of my sisters and brothers who are black, indigenous, or people of color. The gospel message is salvation from oppression and suffering, present and future. I feel it's my responsibility to keep listening. More than responsibility, my spiritual life is at stake if I don't keep listening. Because the most challenging question is not whose side God is on. That's been well established. That question was answered and the cross of Jesus put an exclamation point on it. The question of my life is, will I choose to be on God's side? Do my passion and commitments line up with God's passion and commitments? Of course, when we come to the communion table, the Lord's Supper, we come remembering our salvation. Our social location shapes how we see this table. Is this a safe little ritual involving a morsel of bread and a sip from a tiny cup? Or is this a liberation meal? Kind of like the Passover. on this World Communion Sunday, in solidarity with all our oppressed sisters and brothers around the world, in solidarity with the black church, the church of indigenous peoples, the church of immigrants and refugees and more, I invite us to see the table that's set before us today as a meal of liberation. To see that the broken body and blood of Jesus means God becomes one with all who are oppressed, no matter what kind of oppression, and God offers in God's act of salvation to liberate us.